Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. You know, there's a bar in uh, New York City that claims to have the strongest bartender in the world. And, and to prove it, they have a standing $1,000 bet called the Lemon Challenge. And every day, the bartender comes in and he squeezes this lemon. And the bet is that if anybody can squeeze that lemon after him and get even one drop of lemon juice out, the bar will give that person $1,000. Well, well, all kinds of people have taken this challenge, weightlifters, farmers, football players, you name it, but still nobody has been successful until just a few days ago, a guy walks into the bar wearing a three-piece suit. He's kind of a skinny guy, you know, wearing glasses. He doesn't look all that tough, if we're being honest, but he says he wants to take the lemon challenge. And so people kind of start laughing a little bit, but the bartender says, sure. He squeezes the lemon, hands it to the guy all wrinkled up. And, and to everybody's amazement, this fellow takes off his sport coat and his glasses, and he squeezes not just one, but six drops of juice out of that lemon. I mean, who is this guy, right? And, and so as the bartender is handing him uh, the $1,000, he says, all right, I, man, I, I just got to know, what do you do for a living? Like, are you some kind of hidden lumberjack or closet wrestler? What's going on? And the guy puts on his glasses. He says, no, I work for the IRS. <laughs> it is that time of year again, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but today, we are going to address what I believe is the most fundamental question of your life. Who is this guy? More specifically, who is Jesus? Because outwardly, honestly, Jesus is fairly unspectacular. We're talking about a Jewish peasant who was born 20 centuries ago into the family of a middle-class carpenter. He never ran for office, never commanded an army, never met an emperor, never wrote a book, never even got married. Instead, he spent the first 30 years of his life in a blue-collar family working with his hands and spent the last three and a half years of his life wandering around teaching people from the Jewish scriptures about ethics and spirituality. And yet, never, never has one man made such an impact on the world. Yale historian uh, Jaroslav Pelikan writes this. He says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull out of the history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? And my guess is, not much. Historically, we are forced to reckon with him. It begs the question, who is this Jesus? And every person has to answer that question, not only historically, but personally. Because Jesus taught that history is not cyclical. History is actually heading toward this one climactic moment when we will all stand before him and we will be separated into two groups based on how we answer and lived according to this question, who is Jesus? That's the question at the heart of our text for the day, John chapter 7. If you're not already there in your Bibles, I'd encourage you to get there. Let's set the scene here for John chapter 7. This whole chapter takes place in what's called the Jewish Festival of the Tabernacles. 
It was this huge celebration once a year where Jews from all over would come to Jerusalem and they would celebrate their liberation from slavery in Egypt and they would also thank God for the harvest. It's kind of like 4th of July and Thanksgiving all mixed into one here. And it was called the Festival of the Tabernacles. That's a word that kind of means tents because the people would build these little booths, these little huts, and they would sleep outside in these huts all week to remember the time when their people had been wandering in the desert. And at the Festival of Tabernacles, everybody is wondering if Jesus is gonna be there. Because there's been these rumors going around that Jesus might just be the Messiah, the promised one from God. And there were a lot of opinions about what the Messiah might be like, as we're gonna see in this chapter. But pretty much everybody expected him to be this mighty leader who was gonna come in and overthrow the reign of Rome and liberate God's people all over again. And so what better time to kick off a revolution like that than at the Festival of Tabernacles, celebrating their previous liberation. So now that we have the scene, let's read verses one through 13. It's a long chunk, but hang with me. It says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were there were looking for a way to kill him. Now, you might remember that the leaders in Jerusalem are still mad at Jesus because he healed that lame guy on the Sabbath back in John chapter five and he claimed to be God. That's the, that's the previous context here. But it says, when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers, no, Mary and Joseph had kids after Jesus. Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee, Go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, before we throw rocks at these guys, can we just pause for a second and empathize with these dudes, Jesus's half-brothers? I mean, can you imagine how hard it would be if Jesus was your older brother? You can imagine Mary saying, James, how many times have I told you not to do that? Why can't you be more like Jesus? It's a little bit understanding probably to know that they didn't believe in him at this point, and yet later on after the resurrection, they will, but they don't right now. And so they're saying to him, hey, buddy, hey, Jesus, if you're the real deal, why don't you go do your tricks on the big stage in Jerusalem? That's the way of the world, isn't it? If you wanna make a difference, if you wanna be an influencer, if you wanna make an impact, then you gotta be loud, you gotta get a platform, you gotta get people to see you, but that's not the way of Jesus. Verse six says, therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not coming up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he'd said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now pause, what just happened there? Did Jesus just tell a lie? <laughs> well, we gotta look a little bit more closely, a little bit more closely, because notice Jesus said he wasn't going up to the festival right then, and he doesn't. He waits, and he actually goes up to the, to the festival of tabernacles halfway when the thing is already over. He goes up there midweek, and he doesn't go celebrate the festival living in booths like everybody else. He goes, and he teaches at the temple. Verse 11 says, now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he, he deceived the people but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. And so from here on out, for the rest of this chapter, we're gonna find people talking about Jesus. 
throwing around opinions about Jesus, some of them good, some of them bad. In fact, by my count, there are 18 questions asked in this chapter, and the one question that is underneath all of them is, who are you? You know, for the one challenge this year as a church, we want to become skilled question askers to dig deeply into people's lives. And so if you ask somebody the question, who is Jesus? Let's walk through five potential responses that you might get to that question from here in John chapter seven. Option number one, response number one is one of the most common answers I hear to the question, who is Jesus? We find it in verse 12. It says, he's a good man. Which in one sense, yes, <laughs> Jesus was a good man. He was the only truly good man, but he was not just a good man. Survey shows that the overwhelming, America, uh, overwhelming majority of American adults still agree that Jesus Christ was an actual person who really lived. But after that, opinions about him start to splinter. A survey from just last year revealed that now over half of American adults, 52% say that Jesus was not God 44% say that he sinned just like everybody else. You see, they like the teaching of Jesus without the divine claims of Jesus. And that's not new. It's not unique to us. If you go to the Smithsonian Museum, you can find there a leather-bound book that had been owned by Thomas Jefferson in which he cut out all the passages from the Gospels that he liked. He left out all the passages that had anything miraculous or supernatural in them, and, and he made his own version because he wanted Jesus the man without all that God stuff. But let's slow down here for just a second, and let's debunk the logic of this claim that Jesus was just a good man. Follow me here. For starters, to know that Jesus was a good man, that means that you must believe what the Bible says about Jesus's character because the only firsthand reliable accounts we have of Jesus's character, that he was a good man, are found in scripture. So, if you think that Jesus was a good man, that means that you believe at least part of the scriptural record. However, in that same scriptural record of Jesus's life, alongside the evidence of his being a good man, you will also find evidence of the claims he made that were more than that. Claims that he came from heaven, that he is one with the Father, that he is the judge of the earth, that he is the divine Messiah, that he is the Son of God. So if you accept the Bible enough to believe that Jesus is a good man, you must also be intellectually honest enough to accept the Bible enough to recognize that Jesus did in fact make these claims. And if he did make these claims, and if they are not true, then Jesus was either nuts or he was a fake who deceived multitudes and led thousands of people to senselessly give up their lives for him on the basis of a false claim to be God, in which case Jesus was most certainly not a good man. So who is Jesus? Option number one fails to deliver. He can't just be a good man. So let's look at option number two. He's more than just a good man. Option number two says he's a prophet. And, and we see some people who kind of hint at this here in verse 15. People were amazed at things that Jesus was saying, and they said, how did this man get such learning? Verse 46 said, even the temple guards who were sent to arrest Jesus said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Take a look at another long chunk of text here in John chapter seven, and let's specifically notice all the different opinions about Jesus. This is a pretty long chunk, but hang with me. You can do it. Verses 25 through 44. It says, at that point, some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? 
but we, we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from, which is not true, by the way, but be careful because there's a lot of people around who have some opinions about Jesus that sound really good but have no actual biblical basis. Verse 28 says, Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yeah, you know me and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You don't know him, but I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I'm with you only for a short time, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, now here we are. For the rest of the chapter, I want you to look at these opinions of Jesus. Verse 40 says, On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. You might remember God had promised to send a prophet like Moses. Others said, He's the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So the people are divided because of Jesus. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Some people think that Jesus was the Messiah. Other people think he's just a dude. Some people think that he might not be the Messiah, but, but, but he's a prophet. He, he's still a spokesperson for God. And many of the world's religions still think that. That's option number two. He's a prophet. Muslims believe that Jesus is one of God's highest-ranked prophets, even though he's not actually God himself. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, but he's not God himself. Even more common than those beliefs in our world is that Jesus is a way to God, but he's not the way to God. It's like people have this kind of Mount Rushmore religion where Jesus is lumped up there with Gandhi and, and Buddha and Muhammad and Confucius and Oprah Winfrey, right? I mean, like, like Jesus is one of the faces on the mountain to heaven, but you can pick whichever one you like. They all get to the top. But no, no, no. We saw in John chapter one that Jesus is not just a man of God. John chapter one, verses one through three says, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus himself debunked that Mount Rushmore theology in John chapter 14 verse 6 when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
With a claim like that, Jesus can't be just a good man. He can't be just a prophet. So who is this Jesus? C.S. Lewis, uh, who was once an agnostic, he said it like this. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the sort of thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. And then Lewis would go on to say this. He'd say, you can shut him up for a fool or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So, C.S. Lewis would argue that our remaining three options for answering this question, who is Jesus, are this. He's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Option number three, is he a liar? Some people thought so in John chapter seven, verse 12 says, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives people. Now, there had been other people before Jesus who had claimed to be the Messiah. So is Jesus just a fake like all the rest of them? At the heart of this, we're really asking the question, was Jesus willing to go all the way to the cross and die for a lie? Because man, if Jesus made all these claims knowing they weren't true, then he is history's greatest fraud. And so I guess to answer it, I'd encourage you to read the Gospels for yourself, the accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. If you have never read the Bible for yourself, that is the best place to start. Take it one chapter at a time, and as you read, ask yourself, does this guy sound like a fraud? I think I know what you'll discover. Which leads us then to option number four. Who is this Jesus? If he's not a liar, maybe he's a lunatic. The, the, the powers that be that were around him, they felt threatened by Jesus, and so they accused him of being a backwards, no, backwards know-nothing Galilean hick from Nazareth. They said that he was a Sabbath-breaking, blaspheming, demon-possessed, illegitimately born, law-forsaking, Samaritan-loving, sinner-befriending, crime-committing, throne-threatening madman. When Jesus said in John chapter 7 that people were trying to kill him, the crowd said to him in verse 20, you're demon-possessed, which is a Jewish way of saying, you're cuckoo, man. Who's trying to kill you? And sadly, it will be many of those same people gathered again in Jerusalem six months later for the Passover who are shouting, crucify him. So maybe Jesus was nuts. Maybe he was a madman. Maybe his claims were sincere, but wrong. And again, I, I challenge you to read the gospels for yourself. See if Jesus sounds nuts to you. Because the best observers of human nature today would say otherwise. One California psychology professor said that all he has to do is pick up the Bible and read portions of Christ's teaching to many of his patients, and that's all the counseling they need. You see, a sparkling intellect like the mind of Jesus does not bear the typical marks of mental instability. The scholar Clark Pinnock says it like this. He says, was he deluded about his greatness? 
A paranoid and unintentional deceiver? A schizophrenic? Again, the skill and depth of his teachings support the case only for his total mental soundness. If only we were as sane as he. So if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, then we're left with option number five. Who is Jesus? Well, if you look for yourself at Jesus' life in the Gospels and you conclude that he's not just a good man, that he's not just a prophet, that he's not a liar, that he's not a lunatic, then he must be the Lord. There's no other option. And as the proof of this, the bedrock foundation of our faith, the greatest evidence of the Lordship of Jesus Christ is his resurrection from the dead. It all comes back to that. That Jesus Christ, this man who came from heaven and claimed to be God in human flesh, that he was crucified on the basis of that claim and that the Romans didn't mess up in killing people, that he was actually dead and that he lay dead in that tomb for three days and that the leaders who had him executed thought that they had debunked his claim to divinity once and for all because after all, death is irreversible, right? Uh, a while back, a, a resident of Greenville County, South Carolina, received a letter from the Department of Health and Human Services, and it said this. Uh, your food stamps will be stopped, effective March 1992, because we received notice that you passed away. May God bless you. You may reapply if your circumstances change. <laughs> and we chuckle at that. Because we know that the circumstances don't change, Right? There's tracks going into the graveyard, but there are no tracks coming out. Until on Sunday morning, Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, rose from the dead. And this may sound fanciful for you, but I have looked at the evidence for the empty tomb and I've decided for myself that the most logical conclusion is that Jesus Christ is alive today. And it's not just me. The Guinness Book of World Records would tell you that the most successful lawyer in history is a man by the name of Sir Lionel Lucu. And Sir Lionel Lucu once achieved a 245 consecutive murder acquittals. This guy was knighted by the Queen of England, not just once, but twice. The dude's a double knight. And without a doubt, Sir Lionel Lucu is a guy who's probably familiar with knowing how to examine evidence and come to a logical conclusion, Right? Well, during his own spiritual journey, Sir Lionel Lucu, the most successful lawyer in history, examined the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, and he said this, and I quote, I humbly add that I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world and am still active in practice. I've been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leads absolutely no room for doubt. And if that's true, if Jesus really is alive, then Jesus really is the Lord. Who is Jesus? If he is the Lord, then that demands a response from you. So what will you do today? You can resist him like the Jewish leaders did, letting their intellectual pride and their spiritual superiority stand in the way of their meeting the living God in human flesh as he stood there before them. Or, or maybe you can believe that what Jesus actually says might be true, like some of the crowds did, but you can refuse to acknowledge him or follow him in what he's calling you to do because you fear that you would look silly and stupid to the world. Or, or, you can believe that's why John wrote this book, after all. He said his purpose in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus himself says back here in John chapter seven that the way to know if what he's saying is true, if he really is who he says he is, is to take him for a test drive. Verse 17, Jesus says this, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So I dare you. No, 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 let me change that. Jesus dares you to find out if he works in real life. So do it. Follow his teaching on marriage. Follow his teaching on money. Follow his teaching on forgiveness. Follow his teaching on sex. Follow his teaching on prayer and see what happens. This has probably been a heavy sermon for some of you and I get it because John chapter seven is kind of this really kind of sky high intellectual chapter, right? And that's not some of your flavors probably and that's all right. We've tossed around all kinds of hypothetical answers to this question, who is Jesus? But you know, Jesus He doesn't want this question just to be answered on a merely intellectual level. He wants you to know the answer on an experiential level. Jesus is not just someone about whom we debate. He is someone that we are called to know and enjoy and live with. So as we lay in the plane here, let's look at verses 37 through 39 one more time. And this is Jesus' call to you today. It says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said, in a loud voice. Pause right there. Let's set the scene. Each day in the festival of tabernacles, there was a procession of priests that would go to the pool of Siloam there in Jerusalem. And they would be led by one priest carrying a golden pitcher. And they chose to start at the pool of Siloam because it held what they called living water or naturally flowing water that wasn't still and stale and tepid And the priest would fill his golden pitcher with this living water from the pool and he would carry it back to the temple surrounded by the crowds in this great procession with loud fanfare. And the people then, they would cry out for God to to save them. This water was symbolic that they wanted God to save them like they said in Isaiah chapter 12 when the prophet says, with joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. And then in this water ceremony, the trumpets would blow there at the temple, the crowds would fall silent, and the priest would pour out his water on the altar. They would do this every day of the feast, and then on the last and the greatest day of the feast, the crowds would gather again, marching and chanting, waiting to watch this final water ceremony. They would be waving palm branches and shouting, and as the priest prepared to pour the water out for the last time, the trumpets would blow, the silence would fall across the crowd, but this time, this time, as the water poured, a voice rang out, shattering the silence. Let anyone who's thirsty... Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So who is this Jesus? He's the Lord and he's alive He is the living water. And now, and now, we do have the Holy Spirit that was promised right there. And so that means that you can now have the living water himself living in you. So the question for today is not just who is Jesus, not just will you believe in him, but will you come to him? Will you come to him? That's what Jesus asks. And the only qualification Jesus says is if you're thirsty. Not if you're smart enough, holy enough deeply committed enough, doubtless enough, spotless enough, but are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? 
So if Jesus is Lord, then come and drink. Let's pray. King Jesus, I speak for myself and I hope I speak for my brothers and sisters that we have looked at the options and we have concluded that you are indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God, that you are our Lord and our Savior. And we believe this, not just on a merely intellectual level, not just acknowledging that we think it's true, but we believe this in the sense that we trust you, we desire to align our lives in accordance with your teaching. And Lord, we wanna come to you. We wanna drink from what you have to offer, the living water of grace and mercy and truth and justice and gentleness and kindness that overflows within us as you fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.